Station Commander Group Captain R.L. Topp, Flight Lieutenant P.M. Jewell, Flight Lieutenant P. Holden Rushworth, and Chief Technician Z. Puzinski were most helpful. In London, Mr. Michael Canfield of Harper and Row, the staff of my publishers, Cassell and Company, and Mr. J. Taylor Whitehead of McDonald and Company are to be thanked. Sir Max Aitken, Mr. Christopher Shores, in particular, he provided much valuable data on the RAF and was to a degree the British counterpart of Ring in Germany. Mr. Jack Beaumont of Beaumont Aviation Literature were all of assistance. Miss M. M. Wilkinson, with her ability to do a difficult job well, was of material and moral value. Colonel Ralph L. Michaelis, air attaché at the American Embassy in London, was most helpful. In the United States, my thanks are due to Bill Hess, one of the nation's experts on the fighter war, to Chairman Cass Canfield of the Harper and Row Editorial Board, to Mr. M. S. Wyeth of Harper and Row, and to Mrs. Melvin Hughes. Lastly, my thanks are due to each one of the fighter aces whose most memorable exploit is herein recreated. Without their submission to hours of questioning, down to such details as what they ate for breakfast, what they wore, and so on, the missions could not, of course, have been accurately reclaimed from the past and reproduced in writing. Introduction This book began innocently enough in November of 1961, staggered through four years of intermittent labor in Europe, and reached completion in ten months of concentrated effort in England. I well remember the 18th of November, 1961, when the first Bavarian snow of the season fell in honor of a transplanted American family moving into a small alpine house on the Starnberger See, south of Munich. On a clear day, one could see across the lake the massive peaks of the Alps, farther south, already capped with snow. This was the country where the Second World War had been hatched, where Hitler had been spawned and the Nazi party organized. These were the people who fell for it, lived through it, or despised it. How clearly I remembered the night of the 1st of September, 1939, when Hitler was plunging the world into war, invading Poland. Unable to believe any man could knowingly lead the world into a war which would cost millions of lives, I asked my father, a newspaper editor, if there would really be world war. I was told that it appeared inevitable, and the impression of that moment is still vivid. Two completely clear pictures remain in my memory to this day. One is of standing on the stairway leading upstairs on my way to the bed that night, looking out through the landing window up into a clear September night sky, thinking this would be the last night of peace for much of the world, recalling the many books about the First World War which I had eagerly consumed. Would it engulf America? Would I get into it? What would it be like? That was a Friday night. The other impression is of sitting in church on Sunday, constantly glancing at my watch. Britain and France had set Hitler an ultimatum demanding that he withdraw from Poland. That ultimatum was about to expire, at which time England and France would be officially at war with Germany again after 21 years of peace. The war, of course, swept over America, and I finally came to participate in it, flying a fighter from a base in England over this very German countryside. Here it all began, motivated and caused to a large extent by mistakes at Versailles. Here, Hitler and Nazism gained their start, and before and during the war, leading Nazis and Mussolini after his rescue lived for varying periods on this fashionable, beautiful lake, where I had now taken up my residence. So it was a perfect setting in which to seek out stories of the war in Germany's fighter pilots and since I had already recreated in two books the most memorable combats of America's top fighter pilots in the war, 
and had flown as a fighter pilot over this very country, it was only natural that the possibility of doing the same thing on the other side exerted a strong attraction. Before much could be done that winter, deep snow and Christmas were at hand. In the time available, however, I sought out ex-Luftwaffe pilots who flourish in and around Munich, among other knowing souls, and also the historian of the Gemeinschaft der Jagdflieger, Hans Ring of Munich. Things progressed and took their normal course. Interesting sessions and glider flights were enjoyed with German pilots that first summer, some in Innsbruck, one in Vienna. And one day I pointed the bonnet ring of my Mercedes 220 west along the Autobahn and then north up the Rhine, and called on General Adolf Galland, former General der Jagdflieger, General of the Fighter Arm, under Hitler and Goering. It was June of 1962. Galland agreed to help. It was a forward step. He also supplied me with a list of names of Germans he thought I should see. From these beginnings, the book began to take shape. It was quite simple at first glance, the main question being whether a creditable job could be done in the recreation of fighter missions of Luftwaffe pilots. There was something of a language barrier, and the additional handicap was that there were no ME 109s or Fokker Wolf 190s left in Germany, in which one could fly or sit and study the cockpit. An ME 109 was finally located in England. But the years took care of both problems. A commission in the diplomatic service as consul in Munich slowed the projects for two years, and then in 1965, having done the necessary homework in Germany, I moved to England to complete my project by seeking out RAF aces, visiting RAF fighter stations, and so on, including the Second World War station from which I had flown over 20 years earlier, Wattesem, near Ipswich. A permanent RAF station before the war and now, it was little changed, which was reassuring in a world where everything is changing fast and where there's little we can cling to that might hold back the tide of time a little longer. If the German part of the project had at times been pleasant, with an occasional hot summer afternoon in the Augustiner Keller with an ex-Luftwaffe pilot, a liter in roasted chicken, salt and radishes, and all the Gemütlichkeit of old Munich, the English side of the project was equally so. For in London, every writer is at home among the bookshops, libraries, researchers, records, and the many authors and students of the Second World War. It was, of course, a stimulating experience to seek out the RAF pilots included in this volume. The selection of those to be included was made by officials in a conference at the Ministry of Defense, not by me. The choice of ex-Luftwaffe pilots was easy. The top scorer on the Russian front, the top scorer in Africa, and the general of the fighter arm, and one of the top scorers in the West. But then this book took on new responsibilities. The Luftwaffe and the RAF fought it out for almost six years and were the first to demonstrate to the world the decisive influence of air power. There were clear-cut campaigns, such as the Battle of Britain, then readers would want a summary of these campaigns. They would want to look at the aircraft, the air forces themselves, and the actual losses on each side. We should examine fighter pilots of the Second World War, primarily those of Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and how they affected the war's outcome. We see how much more important their role was in this war than ever before, more important than it is ever likely to be again, if indeed there are dogfights between fighter pilots ever again. We discussed the fighter campaigns in Europe with corrected losses given for each side and analyzed the question of who won the campaigns. Finally, we look at the air forces themselves, their fighters, their strengths and weaknesses, and pre-war plans, how pre-war planning and organization affected the outcome of air war. 
With this background, we move on then into the most spectacular sorties of the leading RAF and Luftwaffe pilots, recreated in detail. Recreations are based on the pilots' official combat records, which have not been released publicly, and on interviews with the pilots concerned. They were then rechecked by each pilot for errors. The reader can fly along on the sortie from start to finish and see how it was for the German or British or American pilot flying one of the most exciting combat sorties of the war. He can also be assured that none of these accounts is artificially colored, nor is there any assumed dialogue so popular these days. Everything included in the recreations is what actually happened or what was actually said as remembered or written. The achievements of the greatest pilots of the Second World War are dramatic enough related as they occurred without journalistic editions of color words, flowing literary descriptions, and so forth. Those who have read My Greatest Fighter Missions, or American Aces, will find in these accounts of the Luftwaffe and RAF fighter combats the same adventure and they will learn how it was done in other air forces. And the study of both sides' claims and the actual losses which occurred give us a better insight into what really took place. How about the pilots themselves? What kind of men were they and are they? How do they vary from country to country? And what in them made them stand above the average to become the high-scoring pilots in their air forces? There is no standard pattern into which one can fit these outstanding fighter pilots. They vary as much in personality, appearance, and behavior as other individuals, though they have a comradeship among themselves. All are alert. One doesn't find a dullard among them, even years after the war. The significant difference between the top-scoring aces and the average pilot might have manifested itself only in the air, what they did under various circumstances, how they did it. It is probably impossible for anyone to see that today, or to have seen it on the ground during the war except to a limited degree, for the fighter pilot alone flies in his aircraft. The author who writes about them must study the records, the opinions of pilots who flew with them, and then observe the men themselves. In trying to characterize the world's top fighter pilot, Eric Hartmann of Germany, Chapter 10, with 352 kills in the war, even this approach fails. In conversation with the deceptively casual and modest Booby Hartmann, one would never know this still young, blue-eyed German shot down more aircraft than any pilot in history. Hartmann affects an easygoing, utterly relaxed personality. Is he inside quite that imperturbable? His record indicates that he is for he shot down Russian aircraft regularly and steadily in cool, business-like fashion for three years. Yet of all the top aces of the war, he is the greatest enigma. One suspects that somewhere beneath that surface calm, beneath that appearance of fitting into the average pilot mold, there burns an intense, determined individual with great self-discipline and an iron will, the man who stood before Adolf Hitler to be decorated for his singular mastery in the air. With Adolf Gallen, Chapter 13, it is different. At once, one can see the intensity and even the excitement of the fighter pilot. He fits the script with a quick smile and winning personality. He radiates charm and leadership, and it's easy to picture him the leader of a spirited fighter gaggle. Of medium weight, with small, dark mustache, penetrating dark eyes, and a devastating grin, as infectious as the late President Kennedy's, he could play the role in a film. Galland was older when the war began and soon became one of Germany's most distinguished pilots, personally decorated by Hitler, whom he advised, as well as Goering, on fighter operations, production, and development over a long period. 
Thus he knew the war at the top, and he knew the Nazi leaders, having held the position of General of Fighters for three years. I first visited Garland in connection with this book in his office, an old stone house on Koblenzerstrasse in Bonn. At that time he was smoking fifteen or twenty black Brazils a day, holding two or three jobs and constantly on the go. Since he has slowed his pace a bit on doctor's orders, no longer enjoys the cigars, and drinks mostly red wine. But he is still active, flies his own plane, and is steady of hand and dynamic in personality. Of the RAF aces, one with something of the same pace and energy is R. R. Stanford Tuck, Chapter 4. Like D. R. S. Botter, Tuck still has the fire of the fighter pilot burning within him, and, interestingly, both were entertained by Galland during the war after being downed in France. Galland extended the invitations as Commodore of Jagdgeschwader, 26. Tuck operates a mushroom farm in Kent these days, a successful enterprise, and often journeys to the continent to shoot with Galland. He was and is a remarkable shot. During the war, Tuck was the epitome of the glamorous fighter pilot and still exudes the traditional spirit. But one of his sons has just chosen to enter Sandhurst. With thin mustache and dark eyes, straight and trim, Tuck today shows all the force of personality and fun which so often figured in the lives of fighter pilots. Douglas Botter, perhaps the most famous of all fighter pilots, is Gallen's age and was on his way up the ladder of command when downed and captured. Of all the fierce and determined spirits in the war, very few indeed surpassed Botter's. He had proved his mettle when the war began, for, with two artificial legs, he had already mastered dancing, golf, and normal life to a degree no other man with two artificial limbs had ever done before. Botter was tenacious, almost without fear, positive in his views, and a dynamic leader. Like the late Graf Felix von Lüchner of First World War fame, Botter is one of the most inspirational figures to emerge from the Second World War. Being human, the image may seem at times not to fit into the present world of the affairs of men, but Botter's life is storybook stuff at its very best, and meeting this freckled, blue-eyed firebrand with all his sincerity and intensity and charm is an experience. A student of First World War tactics, and before his accidents, one of the best stunt flyers in the RAF, when he put his flying skill, unhandicapped by two artificial legs, knowledge of tactics, and determination into the effort in 1940, he quickly became a colorful, highly successful fighter pilot. Bader radiates power, in personality and physically, in shoulders, arms, and hands. One can instantly see in him an individual in complete control of himself. He is still a teetotaler. Two of the RAF aces in this book remained in the flying service after the war.